You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Objectively speaking, Tim Blanks is nothing less than an absolute legend. His reporting on Fashion File was one of my first encounters with the otherworldly majesty of the fashion industry when I was growing up, and with a career that now spans decades, he's managed to enchant multiple generations with his unique interpretations and ability to spin words in a way that somehow contextualizes creativity. In today's episode, we discuss the pivotal moment when he attended that Led Zeppelin concert, his secret to staying engaged and curious about an industry he's seen through countless iterations, and even touch upon the unavoidable subject of AI's impending impact. This is Tim Blanks, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Tim Blanks, I don't think I've probably ever been this excited or nervous for any of the episodes to date. So I wanted to start off by thanking you for joining us because you're an absolute legend and someone I've admired for so many years. So thank you for coming. Well, thank you, Christopher. Now you've made me very, very nervous. <laughs> we can be nervous together. So we love to start at the beginning, and I think your career is widely known, but few people realize that you went off to university at the age of 15. So let's start there and find out how that happens. I made a deal with my parents that if I got a scholarship to university, they had to let me go. Obviously, they didn't want me to go. And I was a sort of strange 15-year-old. I was very worldly in some ways and insanely naive in others, and they were a little bit worried. But they honored their side of the bargain, which I was always very grateful for because I got in and out of higher education very, very quickly and headed out into the world and started making all those mistakes that change your life for good or bad, but from a very early age. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do. So it was very clear in my mind and school was very hard for me. I was bullied and so on. And when I got to university, it was like, oh, wow, this is where I belong with people who are three or four years older than me doing things that I couldn't dream of myself doing. Well, university in and of itself is already a formative period in one's life. But having started it at the age of 15, do you feel like that had any particular impacts in shaping the person you ended up as today? Oh, you mean that I collapse into an abyss of drugs? <laughs> Something no, like that. No, because my obsessions that didn't change from the time I was about, yeah, early teens. I was obsessed with David Bowie, Andy Warhol, The Velvet Underground, Mark Bolan, Roxy Music. Well, some of those obsessions came a little later, but they were always what shaped me, what I was reading, what I was listening to. And that didn't really change when I got to university. The university bookshop gave me opportunities to discover things like Larry Clark, and it opened up the color palette that was available to me. The funny thing is, the one thing that really changed me, actually, completely altered the way my brain operated forevermore, was I saw Led Zeppelin in 1972, I think it was. You know, that joke about you go into something a boy and you come out a man or whatever. I grew up during the course of that Led Zeppelin concert. It was just so astonishing to me. Maybe that had a bigger influence on me than anything at university ever did to me. You said that you already knew what it was that you wanted to do. Were you talking about fashion or? No, 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 yeah. no. The story I always tell is that fashion in terms of the international fashion industry didn't exist in New Zealand. I remember the local posh department store was called Smith & Coe's. And I remember that they got a shipment of Yves Saint Laurent ties. And I remember the reverence with which people approached those ties when they were hanging in that store. It was the first time anybody had ever seen a label, a fashion label. I suppose I was looking at Guy Bourdain photographs and Helmut Newton photographs. I think more than anything, fashion registered with me through 
the pages of Life magazine, which my grandmother subscribed to. And that's where you would see incredible looking people wearing extraordinary clothes. But I don't think that connected with me as fashion so much as just like really, really strong, mesmerizing images. I mean, the first fashion image I ever saw was Jean Shrimpton. She toured Australia and she went to the races in Melbourne. And the races, they're a very high society event and incredibly hidebound by tradition. Ladies wore stockings and hats, ridiculous hats, and they wore their finery. And she showed up in a white smock, no stockings, and her hair just kind of flying all over the place. Not a white smock, a white shift. And I remember this would have been early 60s. And the scandal it caused, if I think about it, maybe that was an early education in the power of fashion to shock and amaze and unhinge people. I didn't take it like that at the time. I just thought she was an extraordinarily beautiful creature. And that image stayed with me for years and years. Fashion kind of filtered in, I guess, through people like Warhol and Bowie. At that time, I was a glam rocker. So yeah, clothes are important and dyeing your hair and wearing platform shoes and all that kind of stuff, sort of trends. But I guess I wasn't really thinking of that as fashion at that point. So then what was the first step into the industry or that space, the first opportunity? Or maybe it was a moment of decision. The first actual job I had that was connected with fashion, obviously all through the 70s, I was getting more and more interested in magazines and style ready-to-wear didn't exist in those days, you know, as the concept that we understand it now. So by a sort of long and circuitous route, I ended up in Toronto and I was working at animated films and I actually worked on Inspector Gadget and Strawberry Shortcake for a local film company called Nelvana. And then when I left them, I was looking for a job and I started freelance writing. And then after a few years of that, I thought I needed a full-time job. And a uh, fashion magazine was the only magazine that would offer me a full-time job. So that was a sort of decisive moment in the sense that when I started work for that magazine, that was my entry to the fashion world where I've been ever since. But it was quite random in a way. If it had been a newspaper that had offered me a job or a travel magazine or something, who knows what would have happened, but it happened to be a fashion magazine. And I eventually became the editor of the magazine and I was doing a TV show that was associated with a magazine called Fashion File and that went global. And it was one of the first cable TV shows to really focus on fashion. Again, that was a total accident. If I could say there was one decisive thing in my life, it would be this kind of accidental right time, right place thing. I was never driven by ambition, particularly. And I think in not really planning for things to happen, that's when they happened. Didn't John Lennon say something about life is what happens when you're making plans, mm. when you're making other plans or something like that? Well, I wasn't making other plans, but life happened. I mean, I absolutely loved the fashion industry when I fell into it. I just loved it. As an outsider, not really imagining that this is where I would spend my life. And I still think of myself as an outsider. I still think I'm a bit off on the sidelines kind of looking at things, which for some funny reason seems to have preserved my enthusiasm for it when a lot of people who were really in fashion and of fashion seem to get quite disillusioned. And I never got disillusioned. I just went with the flow. I just happened to be in the industry during the 90s, which was just such a golden era for fashion. You're walking into two questions I had, one of which was whether or not you ever felt like an outsider, despite the fact that you are very much an insider. 
And then also just the kind of perpetual question of what's next or the inherent inquisitive aspect of your work in general. Are those the things that have managed to sustain your interest through countless collections over the years? Or what is that fuel? Well, the outsider thing, I was just fascinated by the whole thing when I started initially covering it for television and being fascinated by everything about it. I love movies, so I've always read a lot of books about filmmaking. And I found the fashion industry was equally mesmerizing. I was always looking at fashion shows. That was really what my focus was. And so you would see how a show came together. You would see how a show made its impact in its 15 or 20 minutes, 30 minutes. It used to be a lot longer. They would be these fabulous collaborations. And I really got into the hair stylists and the makeup artists and the, the models and everything that was making the finished product. And I think it was the outsider eye in a way that saw the curiosity and the originality and the character of it all. And also the personalities. It felt to me that there were more stories to be told that people were missing, maybe because they were backstage or something. So that curiosity, my curiosity about the whole thing has never really diminished. The industry itself has changed immensely over the time I've been covering it, but there are certain things that have stayed the same. Obviously, there are still designers, there are still models, there are still hair and makeup people, and there are still people making soundtracks, and there are still fashion shows. Every so often, the people declare the death of the fashion show, and it just doesn't happen. And in fact, they seem to have come back even stronger since the pandemic. It's true. And that just feels like this constant evolutionary situation. I do think some of the seminal texts. One of them is Cecil Beaton's book, The Glass of Fashion. And I've always stuck to that idea of fashion being a mirror, and it reflects what is happening around it to greater or lesser degrees. Sometimes it seems to willfully ignore what's happening around it, but other times it seems to be very, very reflective to the point where it almost anticipates what might come. So it's not just reflecting, it's also projecting. I think that's part of its incredible power. That's what's next always is that there is a next, there is always something coming. I think it's been a very interesting time over the last decade or so because fashion has actually reached a reckoning about its place in the world. There's a sort of the cliche of the dream, but now we're fairly well versed in how destructive the dream is as well and how that power, the power of fashion has actually shaped the world in ways that have not been fully acknowledged in the past and are now being dealt with. That's a whole other part of the evolutionary process. You find yourself saying things about fashion that you probably wouldn't have said 20 or 30 years ago. The whole time it feels like a wake-up call. I was in the industry before the supermodel thing blew it wide open. It was almost like a cottage industry. It felt so small compared to what it is now. I mean, I think there's still a lot of stories waiting to be told about that period too. You're mentioning evolution and bringing up the idea of comparison. And I know that you've said that both Helmut and Guy Bourdin were big favorites of yours in terms of photographers. And the reality is, is a lot of the work that they had done during their time might not necessarily be as widely celebrated today. So I wanted to also ask your thoughts on whether or not you felt like certain aspects of the business have become overly sanitized and what you might think about that sanitized or sensitized sensitized sanitized yeah. filtered no I, it's <laughs> funny Bourdain and newton are cases in point i think 
there was, I don't know if it's still up, an absolutely amazing Guy Bourdin exhibition at the Armani Silos space in Milan. It was there during the spring shows in September. And it was the most comprehensive Bourdin show I've ever seen. But it was so interesting, the work that wasn't included in the show and very, very, very glaringly not included. The things that you, while you were still gobsmacked at what he did achieve and some of the images that were on the wall, especially given the technology that was available to him at the time he was making those photographs, the more sensitive areas of his work was definitely not included. It's funny, I mean, there's a core of fashion which is about fetishism. The elevation of the object, the worship of the object. Fashion feels like a very fetishistic endeavor even at its best. I mean, a business which is based on celebration of beauty, beautiful things, obviously is going to have an enormous amount of fetishism involved in it. It's just, I guess, fetishes change or fetishes go back underground or there are just some fetishes that now are just obviously impossible to indulge. Also, there are the issues that revolve around the way people have been treated in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think that has become a very, very significant touch point. And it's not just fashion. There's many things you can do in movies now that you weren't once able to do, but there are other things that you can't do. And I think there's certain things that are impossible in fashion. Fashion's always been, in a way, a celebration of the margins. And, you know, it's a cliche that the people who are drawn to fashion are often the people who are from the fringes of society, the people who are celebrated in fashion. Yeah, maybe they're outsiders as well. It is true. Why do you think that is? Because historically, fashion was a tribe of misfits and revolutionaries in a way. I'm pretty obsessed with Rudy Gernrich and his work in the 50s and 60s. And if you look at somebody like him, He was a social radical. He confronted society. He confronted the mores of his time in incredibly provocative. I mean, he got condemned by the Vatican, for example. At that one time, that was probably a badge of honor because I think Ingrid Bergman got condemned by the Vatican for having a child out of wedlock. Very creative people who couldn't find an outlet for their creativity anywhere else found it in fashion. There has always been that kind of community in fashion that lets people find their people. You can find where you belong. It's like a circus, I guess. You know, a whole lot of people in the circus in this roving family. I think that that's acknowledged in the theater or in movies, that there is a community there that supports people who would find it very, very difficult in the real world. And in fashion, there's a lot of thwarted artists and people who actually consummate their artistry in fashion, some of the most famous designers that you can think of. That's why I was always fascinated by it, because I would find myself talking to people who you would never see anywhere else, never find anywhere else. You actually just reminded me of a quote that jumped out at me in one of your interviews, where you said, human beings just want to please other people. It's what makes them such flawed creatures. Now, obviously, as two standalone statements, it's rather self-explanatory, but I was fascinated by the way you correlated the desire for acceptance with being flawed. I thought that was really interesting. We're eager to please. Mm -hmm. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. In a culture of celebrity, I've always thought it's very interesting that the thing that makes people into stars is usually what they don't have, this sort of hole in their soul that they're trying to fill with popular acclaim. I've always thought that anyway, because you're looking for validation. 
you're looking for something that will make you feel better about yourself. And so you look to other people to find the corrector. You know, the Academy Awards speech, you love me, you really love me. I think that that's the nature of the human animal, that we look to each other, we need each other. And that's why, you know, what's been happening with social media and everything is so self-defeating, because instead of bringing people together, it alienates people. And I suppose that's what you hear about more than anything now is loneliness, alienation, mental health issues. It feels to me that that's all a result of the species splintering, falling apart. No, it's true. I mean, there are endless studies at this point, and yet here we are, continuing on the path, only further engaged by new apps each and every day. Yeah. And with that sort of lens or perspective, I think it goes without saying that being in the position of asking the questions it oftentimes is a great deal easier or feels safer or whatever it might be. But over the years, you've become a beacon yourself to so many different people and obviously have had that role flipped on you where you're in the seat you are today as the interviewee. I was curious as to how that feels to have arrived at a point where you yourself have become an icon. I would dispute that. I, <laughs> I find that quite, quite intimidating when I think of what icons mean to me, everything from religious icons onwards, David Bowie or James Dean or whoever, what makes an icon. But I feel challenged when the roles are reversed, because when you are asking the questions, asking questions is just massive deflection. Mm -hmm. And when the questions are being asked of you, suddenly you're thinking, ooh, how do I answer that question with a question to reclaim the deflective position? It's quite a challenge. And the only thing I can think of for how that happened was that I've just been doing it for so long and I've been popping up on people's radars for so long in these sort of slightly unchanging roles that I become like the village elder, you know, not quite Gandalf because I don't have any magical powers, <laughs> but that person who is only too happy to say, oh, the transformative moment of my life was Led Zeppelin in 1972. What I do feel is a sort of wild and inchoate interest in fashion from more and more people. There's certain critical experiences, the sort of key turning points in fashion that not a lot of people were party to. There was a moment in my life where I would meet somebody who saw Nijinsky dance, you know, and you'd be, oh my God, tell me about that. What do you remember? You saw Nijinsky dance or you saw, I don't know, saw Elizabeth Taylor in a swimming pool or something. Those experiences obviously are completely beyond the reach for me now. But in the same way that if somebody can come to you and say, oh, you saw Kirsten Owen in the Romeo Gigli show at the Louvre in the late 80s when all the jewelry was glass from Murano. And as they were walking, the jewelry was shattering and there was all this tinkling. That's a very, very arcane example of what somebody might come up to me and ask me. But if somebody did come up to me and ask me that, I would be able to say, yes, I was there. So I'd be able to recount that experience firsthand. And I think that's part of it all. There are very few people who've had those firsthand experiences of fashion and are in a position to recount them. And, you know, you become like a storyteller or a sort of keeper of the flame, which is a kind of odd thing. You know, when I said I was an outsider, but also I think that's really, really Important. I know that I love hearing those stories. I mean, there are certain Instagram accounts that I love following because there are things that I always wished I could have seen that I didn't see. And it's great to read about them and just imagine myself in those situations. And 
I can help people imagine a lot of different situations as well. Absolutely. Wow. That was a very, very long way to spell I-C-O-N, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) No, but you are absolutely right. I think having had that access and the experiences that you have is beyond unique and incredibly fascinating to people. But also, like you said, there's a longevity factor that comes into play where your consistent presence as a voice or arbiter of taste in this particular space for so many people, be it from the Times of Fashion Files, Down.com, anything that you're up to today with Business of Fashion and the like, I think it kind of is the cumulative result that you just can't avoid when you're as talented and committed as you've been. Have there been those sort of standout moments that for you have been the most memorable? Is there that one interview or those three moments that perhaps will stick with you the same way that Led Zeppelin concert did? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. There have been too many, really. I was lucky at the very beginning because there weren't a lot of people who were doing what I was doing. I mean, Jeannie Becker on fashion television and Elsa Clench on CNN, Mm -hmm. before me, obviously, and Harry Premier. There was a handful of people doing it. And so everybody was curious, I guess. If I was curious about them, they were curious about me. For example, Yves Saint Laurent wasn't very partial to being interviewed for television, but Pierre Berger pushed him in front of the camera and he needed a translator. So the only person around who could translate was Lulu de la Falaise. Now, for me, with my sort of train spottery obsession with those iconic fashion people, this was an incredible moment. She translated for him. I mean, it wasn't a very good interview. They're both like deer in the headlights. But a moment like that resonates for me because it was so iconic in my world at that point. I sort of glossed over my years of being obsessed with Interview Magazine and everything, but you do acquire a kind of familiarity with with these creatures, these incredible creatures. And so I was as fascinated to meet them as I would be if I was meeting David Bowie or Brian Ferry or somebody or Godfather John Misty now. He would be somebody I'd love to meet. And then there were the shows. There were incredible spectacles. I'm very curious about how my feelings about Alexander McQueen have evolved over the years because... I knew him very well, and I knew him when he was still at St. Martin's, actually. And so I think I saw just about every single show he ever did, men's, women's, Givenchy, haute couture, whatever. I saw the whole thing, and he was always Lee. And then as time has passed on, as time has passed since his death, and there have been the exhibitions and so on, and all the books, the sense of him as an artist now slightly overshadows the sense of him as the guy I knew. But... I look back at some of those shows that he did, and Galliano too, and Jean-Paul Gaultier, Christian Lacroix, and they are the most incredible achievements, the most incredibly sophisticated entertainments, provocative and rich, and these sort of cultural high points, to the point where it's impossible to pick one or two because we were so spoiled. I mean, I was looking at a show schedule the other day from... 1994, and just looking down a list of, I don't know why, it just kind of fell out of the sky onto my bedroom floor. I was just going to say, how does one find that? (laughs) It just was on the floor. It is a calendar, the fall, winter, 94, 95, ready to wear calendar, starting on Friday, March the 4th at nine o'clock with Junior Watanabe and ending on Tuesday, 8th of March with Jean Colonna. And in between, there were all these names a lot of them no longer with us, but a surprising number actually still with us. I just think about how each day 
and the calendar was filled with incredible, actually, you're right. Where did this piece of paper come from? (laughs) It was literally on the floor when I sat down to talk to you. Maybe it was sent by Pixies, (laughs) but here there's a day, there's Lacroix, Helmut Lang, Sonia Kiel, Vivian West, Jean-Paul Gaultier, Kenzo, and then another Jean-Paul Gaultier show. There were two shows. I mean, that's one afternoon and they were shows, they were proper shows. But then when we move on to a more cerebral time, Helmut Lang shows were amazing. Raf Simmons shows were amazing in terms of interviews. Getting to talk to Helmut for the first time, I remember, was incredible just because he'd never talked to me for years and years and years. And suddenly to get to talk to him was amazing. Ray Kawakubo, when I went to Tokyo to talk to her in the late 80s. And in those major moments, were you ever nervous? Always. I was always nervous. But what I've generally found, because I've done a lot of interviews, I've done a lot of work that wasn't fashion work over the years. And interviewing somebody like Warren Beatty, obviously, is kind of challenging. All writers, writers, you know, Philip Pullman, the guy who wrote His Dark Materials, which is one of my favorite trilogies. People who I've totally built up in my mind. I mean, Mick Jagger. You have this notion of people being intimidating or difficult most of the time they're not at all sometimes they've been really bad interviews which amuse me (laughs) because it's you know it's a salutary to have good and bad experiences in these things obviously it can't all be can't all be cloud cuckoo land that's one thing i've always said i've felt incredibly lucky to do what i do because of the things i've seen that i wouldn't have seen otherwise the experiences i've had that i wouldn't even have known existed and i kind of wonder now when I look at what's happening in fashion and I look at what's happening in the world, what is next? And, you know, I don't have a clue. I just judged the Woolmark Awards last week and this really, really great designer from Nigeria, his label is called Lagos Space Corporation, won. And you can see balance shifting. You can see what's happening in Africa will ultimately have a big effect. I don't know if it will be happening in the next few years or whether it will take a bit longer, but the Northern Hemisphere will have to interact more and more with the Southern Hemisphere. Adeju, the designer for Lagos Space Corporation, his story is so fantastic. And his work reminds me of Issey Miyake in the early days. It's coming from a similar place, a sort of celebration of an element of his culture, a particular element of his culture, as a sort of counterpoint to what we see constantly from Paris or Milan or New York, where we're more used to seeing things coming from. And it's a new language. That's exciting. You know, I would love to see a lot more of that. And I'm sure we will. I don't know if I'll be here to see it, but it feels like a natural evolution. Fashion is an international language, but it speaks in thousands of dialects. I think more and more culturally, one of the things that has happened in the time I've been working in fashion is that it has become a way for different countries to talk about themselves. Their fashion industries have become a different way for them to express themselves. I mean, that could be a force for good, I guess, I hope. Of course. And you're talking about things like what's next. It's kind of impossible to ignore the subject of AI or ChatGPT and all of the subsequent changes those things indicate. How do you feel about that kind of space as a whole or even the way it's affected editorial choices at certain platforms? Everything is slanted so negative Mm -hmm. about AI. Everything you read really is about how it's going to destroy us. I suppose that given our track record, I mean, the internet was supposed to be a godsend. The internet was supposed to bring about a new brotherhood and sisterhood of humankind, wasn't it? And look what we did with it. So when you look at something like AI, to actually step back and say, well, what could be good about AI? 
seems to be a bit counterintuitive. But I'm super curious to see what people do with it. I'm super curious to see how people interact with it. I read something really interesting in the FT on the weekend, and there was an interview with a Turkish economist, and his name is Daron Asimoglu. He talks about technological progress and how humanity can flourish. He's talking about how AI can empower, how upskilling through AI could be a hugely transformative force. Obviously, it's very easy to see how AI could bring us to our knees. But in another way, with something like fashion, with the sort of visual opportunities that AI presents, I mean, Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys said that he thinks AI could be a useful tool for musicians Mm -hmm. who are trying to get from point A to point W. And the bit in the middle is proving a little bit challenging by just creating sort of these informational bridges. I could see that being just as applicable in fashion. Obviously, it depends on how it's used. (laughs) Exactly. And it seems to me that if you use AI with good intent, you might get good results. If AI learns, it's all about the machine learning from the human teacher. If the teacher is teaching it good things, then surely the AI, as the teacher is teaching it values and ethics, which is a rather interesting notion then you should get a good result. I don't know. Until we start really getting bombarded with the nightmare, I would like to see what happens with the dream. Some people have been sending me things like the chat GPT, where the chat's been charged with creating, say, like a press release or something. It's quite interesting. I imagine that PR people must be a bit spooked. Really, uh, maybe I shouldn't say anything more, but I'm curious to see what happens. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that it depends on how you engage it, right? Because that's really the determining factor. And more than anything, despite whatever kind of disarray it may have caused in the minds of people who are anticipating some end to their profession or whatever, at the end of the day, it's actually an additional element that we can deploy in our favor in the service of our craft. And maybe it makes one thing redundant while creating a new opportunity that historically you couldn't have made otherwise without that type of a technological thought partner. So there's a lot, you know, to consider. And what it's not you all said, bad. what you mm-hmm. said, but no, I do think that that notion of intent is important and I'm curious to see what happens. I mean, the problem is obviously that we have the internet as an example of something that was intended as a benefit to the species. And obviously it's turned out a lot more ambiguously than that. But I do find AI, some of the uses of it so far have been incredibly entertaining, but maybe that's a little bit glib to say that uh, something that is potentially going to decimate all those professions in fashion. Or, or just evolved. I think at this point, we should all just be playing with it for fun and explore how it can inform the things that we might want to do moving forward. I think to entirely ignore it is really the only thing one might do at their own peril. But yeah, it's an interesting new space that's continuing to take shape at rapid rates. And I'm very curious Have you curious done anything with it? I played with ChatGPT a few times. It's interesting because... My writer friends find it quite robotic in terms of the tone of voice, but I do feel like it can be helpful if you want to bang out some elaborate communication and say, format this according to X, Y, Z, and you know, correct grammar and sentence structure, whatever it might be. And in those cases, I find it quite useful. But other than that, I haven't really delved into anything else just yet. Have you told it to do anything like in the style of someone, for example, or have you told it to duplicate something that is very familiar to see how capable it is of doing that? 
Not to duplicate, but I've definitely made references to particular tones of voice that I thought would be applicable to whatever the use case was. And in some cases, I find it on point, And in other cases, I find it slightly pedantic. So I guess it just really depends. Mm. What tone of voice have you told it to use? Well, I tend to be quite verbose. So <laughs> I, yeah, I'll just say, you know, make this succinct and articulate and all of the other things that I'm not naturally. And in some cases it works. And in other cases, I feel like it takes out key elements that I would want left in. So it's by no means perfected just yet, but I, but I do think it can see, be helpful. Then you add them, then you add those yeah. key elements and then you get exactly what you want. It does all the mundane things. It creates a tone of voice and then you add the things that make it exactly what you wanted it to say. I'd be really curious to see how it would edit. I'm curious about the editing possibilities, actually. If I said, do everything I do in the voice of Don Winslow, who is my obsession at the moment, that would be kind of fabulous because it would be so obviously a major change, but it would be a very refreshing one, I think. Yeah, you should play with it. It's quite fun. Mm. And then inevitably, we have to ask you the namesake question, which is, what are your thoughts on what's contemporary now? You mean also how this reflects on fashion or do you just mean generally what is contemporary now? I think it's a question posed more so through the lens of culture, but yeah. obviously fashion is a huge part of that fabric. I would love to say what's contemporary now is like a sort of revolutionary spirit that demands change and is prepared to go to reasonably extreme lengths to bring change about. It feels to me like that's what's needed. It feels to me like it's time for idealism coupled with pragmatism expressing itself in action. That's a beautiful formula. That feels that, very... That feels contemporary to me now. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, fashion would have a part to play in that. I just say, where, where are Westwood? Where are those people? Where is that spirit? I don't want to see punk consigned to history books. I look at those clothes Vivian Malcolm were doing in the 70s and how out of time they were, how they just stood there like something that wasn't spun out of Dior's new look or anything. It didn't those clothes just were so, they weren't of their time. They were of their time in their sort of essence, in their attitude, in their anger, in their iconoclasm. But physically, stylistically, those clothes were absolutely extraordinary. That showed how fashion could play a part in whatever was happening. Actually, fashion in the UK was, at that time, wasn't even fashion what she was doing, but it was a rebel yell. I guess I'm kind of hungry for that again, even at my advanced stage. I would still love to see that moment come again. And it will. It has to. I think there's so much anger and there's so much injustice. And I just don't see how there won't be some gigantic cataclysm. Yeah. I mean, cycles are inevitable. Yeah. It's very true. It's very true. It's also human nature to be very caught up on your moment and to think, oh, this has never happened before. And this is only happening to me and this is really, really bad. And if you look back through history, I think things are just happening much faster now. That's the issue. Things happen in years instead of decades or centuries. So that's the big difference. And it's very discombobulating. But I guess we, the actual human species, evolves so fast that nature's had a hard time keeping up with it. But I think nature's kind of turning around now a little bit or catching up a little bit. I mean, I'm wildly curious about the next 10 years. I don't know how much harder it's going to be to maintain this sort of illusion, this facade of civilization or whatever, but it's certainly going to be a pretty wild ride. And I just hope that we don't take everything else with us. That's all. That's my fervent hope. I'm planting flowers for bees and things, just trying to do my own little tiny, tiny little thing to make sure that 
something lives on after I've gone. Well, I'd like to think that you're certainly not alone in that. I do think that we've seen an incredible portion of the population, specifically younger generations who are quite galvanized by that threat to the well-being of our future and whatnot. So I do think there's a great deal of promise and a lot of hope and a lot of changing in narratives and practices. And while it might not be as quick as we would all like it to be, it sort of inevitably demanded of brands who want to sustain their success as far as the values their consumers want from them. So I see light. Yeah, but fashion has a real challenge in that something that is based so thoroughly on consumption has its work cut out for it to create a sustainable version of that because the billion dollar business is still a lot of brands dream, isn't it? The sort of giantism is a measure of success for them. And giantism can only inevitably produce waste. So it's a huge challenge. Isn't it after oil, the manufacture of cotton is the single most destructive environmental thing on the face of the planet, the production of cotton? I don't know the specifics. I only know that fashion plays a very significant role in the destruction of the planet, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could talk to you for hours. You are definitely a wealth of information. And again, I'm so thrilled that we had the chance to do this. It's something that I wanted to do forever. So thank you for saying yes. It was so lovely to speak and I hope we get to do it again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes and for more content follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. 